This is episode 62 of the Immunology Podcast, T-Cells and Solid Tumors with Dr. Kristen Anderson. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rod. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Kristen Anderson from the University of Virginia on the podcast to talk about her research on engineered immunotherapy for solid tumors. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first, we'd like to remind our listeners about the upcoming International Union for Immunological Societies Congress taking place in Cape Town, South Africa from November 27th to December 2nd. We are very excited because we will be attending. Uh, so you can visit IUIS2023.org for more information. Well, so we both had holidays recently. I had Labor Day and apparently you were on holiday as well, right, Brenda? Indeed. I mean, it is it was August after all, you know, here people don't work. August is uh, most people don't even work in this, in this continent. I, I know. It, 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 believe me, it, for someone involved in transnational manufacturing, it's frustrating. Yeah. Did you go, yeah. What country did you go to, Brenda, on your small little, you know, drive or train? I went to the beautiful mountain country of Switzerland. I visited the Mont Blanc or Monte Bianco, like the Italians would say. It's really cool. There are still some glaciers there that haven't yet completely um, melted away. So it's pretty good. Pretty cool. Yeah. Where, where I grew up in the summers, Mount Hood was where the U.S. ski team trained because you could ski on the glacier in the summer there. Nice. And you know glaciers. I do. I do. I have fallen down a couple of them. Have you? How come you're still with, amongst us? Because I eventually stopped falling. <laughs> you, you know, you can go a thousand feet and then stop. And then your skis stop you. And then you get back up and keep going. That doesn't sound safe at all, but well. Skiing you know. is not a safe sport, Brenda. <laughs> yeah, but falling down like a glacier, that also doesn't sound. You can, you can ski like normal people on like just regular mountains. I would argue regular mountains have glaciers and that all the other mountains are just wanting to be a full-grown mountain with a glacier. But for my Labor Day, I painted little miniature figurines with my son, who's now getting into the Battletech war game for any of the uh, audience who actually knows what that is. I have a nine-year-old who's going deep into war games all of a sudden. So that, that's that been an interesting experience. Wow. Look at that little guy making his father proud. Both proud and very busy because now I have to read all the <laughs> rules and then explain them to him. And he reads them too. And then we have to catch up and then have eight-hour battles very nice. Uh, I wish I had a kid that would play, uh, well, maybe not war games, but some other kind of game. That sounds kind of fun. Sounds like you're you're building yourself a little uh, game companion. Yes, we've, we've progressed well past Settlers of Catan now. That's pretty good. I mean, for a nine-year-old, like, moving past Settlers of Catan, good good yeah. parenting. I like it. I'm trying. It's, 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 a, it's a skill. We're working on it. Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons, we've done some of, but we'll we'll do more later it's it's it doesn't get hard because then kids you need to for dungeons and dragons you need to have like some continuity or like does it take too much focus for for a child to it's to more like... that i have to also game master it and be ready and i just can't keep up with how often he wants to play which is now why i'm appreciating the notion of professional game masters that you can just hire because like it's a lot 
Can't you just get like ChatGPT to like game master for you? Just like forever and ever, never tires and never always has something new to say. That would be interesting. I know. I bet you someone's done that. Yeah, for sure. I'm. I'm. I, I guarantee you, it's an app that uses some AI, um, uh, you know, language learning model that that makes uh, this thing. So I should then. Then you're. You don't even need to worry about it. Your kid can just play with a machine, and then what could could possibly go wrong? We're going to have Skynet soon. That's all I can say. All right. Let's move to a, a brighter topic because we're, we're going yes, downhill we're, here. We're going, we are. All right. So uh, in terms of high computational needs, segue, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> let me talk to you about the paper, High Resolution Landscape of an Antibiotic Binding Site in Nature. First author being Kevin B. Yang. Last author is our Aviram Rasuli and Evgeny Nudler. A Nature, August 30th. And it came out. So this this gets into the molecular biology, biochemistry weeds of RNA polymerase and bacteria. So antibiotics often bind to parts of, of um, important enzymes for replication. And so rifampicin is an important antibiotic. It binds the RNA polymerase of E. coli, and they did a site-by-site mutation mapping using a process called MAGE, Multiplex Automated Genome Engineering, which they have, they've produced many of the papers on, from what I can tell, in this, in this, um, const- in the field on using MAGE. I believe that is kind of their thing, or at least one of the, some of the authors' thing, uh, to an extent. Um, from what I can tell, but mage is an awesome name. First off, great acronym. Love it. Uh, but what they do is they first did a mage profile of the specific binding region. that's already known for the antibiotic because you don't need to mutate everything. Then they looked at just what happens after that without antibiotic for selective pressure. Are they causing a selective effect? Yes, no, on its own. And then use that as the baseline to compare to antibiotic addition, right? Because if you mutate it and has some other selective effect, you don't want to throw the antibiotic on top and just confound everything immediately. So they do the work. They identify there's this alpha helix that they go after. And they find some important residues. And if you're a structural biologist and just say RNA polymerase, you should read this paper for that reason. But for kind of the higher level, interesting part, they find that things that cause rifaximin to bind tighter, turn it from a bacterial static to a bacterial cytal antibiotic. So it's causing death. And then they do some really cool studies looking at sequencing of open um, genome. I don't, I don't want to say chromatin because they're not chromosomes of open genome. And they show that what's happening is that in the mutation, the RNA polymerase is getting stuck. And so then when more rep in it, so during replication, this doesn't happen at baseline, but during replication events, you're causing a traffic jam so that, so that the DNA polymerase coming behind the RNA polymerase runs into it, and then you have death and double-stranded breaks. And so they're saying they see that because eliminating rec a or rec bcd um, which are the recombination proteins for double-stranded dna makes these even more bactericidal and then they also see it just from some sequencing data so that's the first thing that they found and the second big discovery that they found was that things that make the rna polymerase go faster 
while it causes a fitness advantage at low temps, if you have something that depletes nucleotides, such as anti-metabolites, it causes them to be, causes the antibiotic to work even better because it causes the mutation actually on its own or with the antibiotic to work even better because then what happens is, um, sorry, it doesn't cause that antibiotic to work better, it causes other antibiotics like sulfa, which is an anti-metabolite effect to work better because they deplete the nucleotide pool so fast that then they starve before they're done because they're super speedy. So you can actually have mutations that cause super speed, which have a fitness advantage at baseline at a 35C growth. So that's good. But then if you starve them or inhibit them in any way, they fall off the wagon and die. So there you go. Some antibiotic structural biology. I guess it's always no, good to know exactly how our antibiotics are interacting with our deadly pathogens. And this is, or which, which type of antibiotic, which antibiotic again is, are they studying? It's rifampicin. Rifampicin. It's one of the ones you've, I promise you've used to, to culture bacteria. It's like pretty comp pretty common. It is. Um, it's called an antimycobacterial, so it's not oh. common for human infections. It's used for mycobacterium, av mycobacterium avium is very common. It also works in E. coli. Um, it helps protect against TB, so it's an important antibiotic, generally speaking. I think that's where I heard it from, TB. That's, that's where it but It works on E. coli. It binds to... RNA polymerase, but there's lots of mutations. And they also do some mutational analysis, by the way, look at other bacteria and see how it's conserved or not, and then find that some have that fast mutation at baseline and some other things. So they do some evolutionary biology mapping as well. And is there any, any way this uh, study could help maybe make a variant of, of rifampicin that is more broadly applicable or that is resistant to some mutation or something like that? I'm not sure they quite show that, but it does show where the changes in mutation are happening and the selection pressures on it for general antibiotic understanding. So the notion that some of these with this fast process, because it's all about the RNA polymerase, are susceptible to more susceptible to sulfa. That's like, a, like, oh, maybe you can identify that and know what species are better to go after. Okay. Well, very interesting. I don't think about antibiotics enough sometimes i feel there's such so by 2050 it'll be the second leading cause of death after heart disease it'll outpace cancer will be antibiotic resistant infections will outpace cancer by 2050. great thanks for that welcome to PSA. the 18th century again awesome that's exactly how i wanted to you know transition to my paper the doom the doom is coming there's nothing all of this is irrelevant because we're all going to die of uh, antibiotic uh, resistant infection, which is probably true. Anyway, um, okay, so on a lighter note, let me talk to you about gamma delta T cells and how uh, a new study highlights a different angle uh, of, of how gamma delta T cells um, can monitor cell health uh, through their... Um, the, the the ligands that they recognize on on on, on target cells, and I think it's very interesting. Uh, it's a really cool story. 
Um, so the paper is called CRISPR screens decode cancer cell pathways that trigger gamma delta T cell detection. And the first authors are Murad Mamedov, Shane Vidova, and Jacob Freimer uh, from uh, the lab of Alexander Marsin at UCSF. And kind of long story short, so they are looking, they use CRISPR screens to try to find um, genes or uh, regulators of the recognition of a tumor cell line uh, that they used by gamma delta T cells. And no, you, we know that gamma delta T cells, they have this, this special TCR that it's uh, encoded by, it has this gamma and a gamma chain and a delta chain. And there's different uh, subsets of gamma delta T cells are the most abundant is the one that has the gamma, uh, sorry, the delta two chain. And um, particularly the V, so the, 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 the delta, uh, the gamma nine delta two chains are one of the most uh, abundant gamma delta types uh, of, of present in, in, in humans. And it's, this is always kind of difficult to study because gamma delta subsets are quite specific to humans. They're not really comparable with the mouse version. So it's hard to also, I think that's why we are understanding of gamma delta T cells is uh, kind of really still not complete because it's not easy to study these cells. Uh, you need to study it in, in a human setting kind of. So they focus on these, uh, so delta nine, uh, uh, sorry, gamma nine delta two uh, T cells, which have this uh, known specificity uh, for the a complex um, composed of uh, B, uh, BTN3, uh, BTN, uh, BTN2A1, BTN3A1, BTN3A2, and uh, in which, well, BTN stands for uh, butyrophilin 2, butyrophilin 3. Butyrophilin is a ligand that is the known ligand for these particular gamma delta chain. And they associate together on the surface um, and they respond. So they are, um, they are expressed on the surface uh, uh, responding to the presence of certain met metabolites inside the cell, uh, certain phosphometabolites that are derived from a metabolic pathway, the mevalonate pathway. And these uh, metabolites are both of bacterial origin, and I think a lot of F, a lot of uh, initially a lot of the focus was on the uh, possibility of these uh, phosphometabolites to be uh, outsourced sourced from bacteria, and therefore indicators of bacterial uh, intracellular infection, and therefore that would be the kind of the usefulness of these gamma delta T cells that are in, in, indirectly. Uh, sensing these metabolites. But we also know that in particular, uh, tumor cells that have a dysregulated metabolism also have an increased abundance of this uh, uh, phosphometabolites uh, phos uh, that are basically phos kind of phosphoantigens. And that we also can see that uh, gamma delta T cells of, these, of this particular subset can, I, can recognize uh, under certain circumstances, tumor cells and kill them. So 
they focus on this interaction and they do a CRISPR screen uh, looking at different genes that not only are affecting the uh, that are affecting the kind of the two factors that um, will modulate the recognition by gamma delta T cells, which is the expression of phosphoantigens, but also the surface expression of the the uh, BTN protein itself, and kind of they do a lot of they 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 they, they show they have a really nice uh, platform to do this, and I'm gonna kind of uh, jump a little bit to the conclusions. Because I think it's very interesting. They find so they 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 when according to the the kind of genes that they find, they realize that uh, there's it's not only the the abundance of phosphoantigens that is regulated inside the the dysregulated metabolism of of the the, the tumor cell because of the uh, metabolic pathway itself that is uh, increased, but also there's direct um, influence by certain metabolic uh, sensors that will modify the expression of the beta uh, of the uh, BTN proteins themselves, and I think really the most interesting result that they see is that there's one uh, particular uh, protein which, which is AMPK, which is known is a very well known regulator of uh, cell metabolism, and it is activated upon a um, it can sense uh, a lack of ATP. Uh, it's activated upon, sorry, it's called AMP. AMP uh, it's activated by high amounts of AMP in the cell, which signal a low energy situation. And usually they are it's activated in, in tumor cells because of this metabolic dysregulation. And so they show that one AMP, AMPK activation actually can upregulate BTN3A in particular, this component of this of this complex, therefore providing a more or less direct way in which the internal metabolism uh, like cues that are um, that are reflecting the metabolic state of the cell can also directly influence the expression of this complex on the surface and therefore make the cells more susceptible to gamma delta V, so gamma 9 delta 2. Uh, recognition and lysis. And I think this is really interesting because then it kind of adds a different layer of um, uh, of um, activation, of different layer of regulation of how these gamma deltas can recognize the tumors. Um, and they, they show that they do this uh, both by um, by metabolic regulation of the of the mevalonate pathway itself but also through expression of these particular uh, the complexes. So I think it also adds another got adds more um, credence to the idea that gamma that uh, gamma nine delta two cells are also can also be important tumor control um, um, cells. But because I think they're usually more associated with bacterial infections and the the metabolites that come from bacteria intracellular bacterial infections. Uh, I start wondering how much the when we hear about tumor microenvironment, it's all mediated by metabolites because a tumor's weird metabolism of everything. Yeah. But, you know, you just gave me the world's best segue. Did so I'm I? I'm going to talk to you about immunometabolism. Awesome. That's... So I'm going to talk to you about metabolic programs of T cell tissue residency empower tumor immunity. This is Nature, 30th of August, 2023, here. First author is Miguel Reina Campos. Last author is. Ananda Goldrath. 
and this paper goes pretty deep but i'm going to try to try try to keep the summary at a high level here so tissue resonant memory cd8 t cells so trms as this paper calls it you know they they come on rapidly they offer long-term protection this affects tumors it affects infection they do an immunometabolism sweep look knocking out crispr in mice to start with uh T cells that then convert to resident memory T cells. So they kind of start this by taking CD8 T cells, doing this, you know, lymphocytic choreomeningitis virus, this LCMV way of tracking viral response, do various knockouts. They use the P14 T cell receptor transgenic system with the specific glycoprotein. So they're, they're inducing a response. And then they basically set up the system with a screen on top of it for metabolic genes and come in on the cholesterol pathway as being really important for stashing tissue residency, but most important in the small intestine. And then as you get more and more robust in knockout, so Cas CRISPR Cas9 being the greatest, but they then verified this with like hairpin RNA or a uh, you know so SI RNA versus a full induction of shRNA by genetic induction versus full CRISPR. So the bigger the dose of knockout of this pathway, and I'll get the specific genes in a second, but they show dose-dependent effect for all of this, where it's most important in the small intestine and less in other things, but there's some tissue specificity to how much it matters. So the first gene they really come after is SREBB2. This is a sterile binding gene. It senses the still regulatory element binding protein two senses cholesterol leads to downstream signaling, right? And has a negative than regulator of cholesterol synthesis actually. And if you, um, it's really important in tissue resonant cells, especially in the small intestine, you knock it out, you get less memory cells. So that's their first finding. But then they did some cholesterol signaling. You notice that it wasn't really cholesterol dependent. And in fact, if high levels of cholesterol downregulate SREB2 you know, from negative inhibition, right? Feedback. And so it actually doesn't help. What they find, though, is by looking at some other genes involved and looking at effects of statin and everything, it definitely is statin dependent. So that's internal synthesis of HMG-CoA reductase. That's what the statins block. But the cholesterol pathway, which really the mevalonate, which you had talked about, cholesterol pathway, and that has non-steroid, remember cholesterol is technically a steroid or a sterol, um, sorry, sterol, but it's, it's non-sterol components of that pathway and shunts. And they show that the shunting pathway to coenzyme Q, which is one of the like part of the electron transport chain, is vital. And that's where this all action is happening. So you do some nice knockouts. They do a knockout of a gene called FDFT1 that creates a protein that's part responsible for the shunt. So if you knock it out, you have more shunting, essentially. It forces a shunt with knockout, so you get more coenzyme Q, and that leads to an accumulation in the liver of resonant cells. So they do some more work. They do enzyme, they do small molecule inhibitors, and again, dose-dependent knockdowns, and show that this coenzyme Q is really what's driving this. And so what happens then is that this enzyme supports mitochondrial respiration. They look at that pathway too. They measure mitochondrial respiration. 
if you have more mitochondrial respiration or you inhibit it and you get the opposite effect, you get more tissue resident memory cells. And then they show that in um, this, the axis can boost tumor immunity by boosting this axis, you get better tumor immunity. And then they even indeed look in tumors and can find that um, they, they did some human tumor cells and then some tumor models that show that this could lead to better control of the tumor, right? And I think they even went back into humans. It's upregulated and exhausted proliferating. It's actually upregulated in cancer and tissue rem resident memory cells. So to even get them into cancers that's been resected, you have to have this pathway activated. So it's coenzyme Q through the cholesterol pathway is a fundamental metabolite to generate resident memory T cells. I guess that's um, that's in line with, we know that they have a very active mitochondrial respiration and that's right. what coenzyme Q is part of. So um, is this surprising? What? How do they... Basically, get it all the way down to it's so this pathway, these molecules that have to do it. And if you inhibit it or supplement it in the right ways, you have downstream, you know, mouse level clinical effects. Okay. They can do like, you know, they did a melanoma model and then enhanced the pathway and made melanoma go away better. Ah, okay. They enhanced the pathways through overexpression or some small molecule? Uh, they did small molecule inhibitions to cause the shunt and then I, they overexpressed it as well. They did it multiple ways. Okay. Yeah. I guess in, in, in always when it comes to this, yeah, metabolic pathways in T cells, they always does seem to look like healthy mitochondria is critical for especially the tissue resident uh, cells to survive. Yeah. All right. Okay. So for the last paper of today, talking about survival, um, I have another also cool story. I like it. Um, I think it's a clever idea. Uh, so this uh, story is, uh, this paper is called um, Epitope-based editing CD45 in hematopoietic cells enables universal blood cancer immunotherapy. I thought it was pretty cool. So uh, first author Niels Velhausen uh, and from last authors Carl June and Sar Gill. Uh, Carl June, of course, at uh, UPenn, and the same for uh, Sargil. And yeah, whoop whoop! You 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 didn't see, but um, Jason always gets uh, happy when he hears UPenn. Um, Gotta love Penn. Yeah. What was your mascot again? What was the um, go? Do you have a no? Okay. I don't remember. I'm a, I was a po a stock there, but Carl June, you know. Yeah. That's episode four, I think. Yeah, he was one of the early. So thank you very much, Carl, for having, you know, believed in us early on. He's a pioneer um, in all things. <laughs> for sure. Okay. So I think the the title kind of gives the 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 secret away uh, quickly, but this in this paper, uh the authors are trying to uh make a point that of course, you know, hematological malignancies are uh, very diverse uh, and we have been able to successfully treat some of them uh, using uh, CAR uh, T-cell treatment. And this is because there's, for some of the malignancies, there are very specific markers that we can target that can uh, 
work so that if you have a, a CAR T cell that recognizes a specific marker and gets rid of the of uh, the tumor cell, for example, CD19, uh, you can have actually a very, uh, for many patients, this can be a very uh, effective treatment. Sometimes it does happen that if this marker, in the case of CD19, is not uh, indispensable for the, for the proliferation or the function of the cell, it might be that cells can be uh, pressured into losing it, and then you have a relapse, and that's also not good. On the other hand, different types of hematological malignancies will have different markers. So, you know, CD19 will only be uh, valid for malignancies that are like in a B cell derived. Uh, of course, if you have a T cell lymphoma, then that's not going to work. And that makes it you know, harder for T cells, which, which, which marker can you use that is not going to affect, you know, your therapy that is manageable because you can get rid of all of a patient's B cells, but and treat them with immunoglobulins and they survive, but that's not the case for other kinds of, uh, of immune cells. So what they, they, they look at is like, okay, can we find a marker that is widely expressed on any hematological cell and um, that is, can be kind of, can we, can, can we, we can lose. And so, they they go around this point a little bit and they kind of zero down on CD45. And CD45 is, um, as you know, expressed on all uh, uh, hematopoietic cells. So it's very, um, it's very wide. It's a very, very uh, widely applicable marker. So you could basically target any hematological uh, tumor uh, with it. And so they, they start, they find, uh, they use kind of known uh, antibodies against CD45, and they end up zeroing in in a, a couple of of card constructs using these uh, their variable uh, domains, and they kind of compare them to see which of them are is binding, uh, and they they find a couple of card constructs that would could potentially target CD45, and then they say, well, if we have a car a car T cell that has a CD45 specificity, of course, to prevent fratricide, we should get rid of the CD45 in the car, in the, in the, in the car T cell. And this is where, of course, if you think about it, the CD45 is a phosphatase that is important, particularly you know, in the case of, of, of T cell signaling, but also for the development of immune cells in general. So actually getting rid of CD45, it's not, at the long term, it's not great. They show that you can have some initial response but then eventually cells stop uh, functioning and then you end up, you have a relapse. So it's not a durable solution. So what they do, and I think it's really cool, is they say, well, we cannot get rid of CD45, but can we get rid of the epitope that is recognized by our favorite car? And that's exactly what they do. They use base editing uh, and they're lucky enough that they find, so base editing with, with, with Cas9, uh, in this case, they have... Um, Based editing with Cas9 functions that you have the, the kind of the, the domain that binds to DNA of Cas9 intact, so Cas9 can find the target sequence, but the uh, the uh, cutting domains are deactivated. So instead, what you have is a deaminase bound physically to Cas9, and then it will change some of the nucleotides in the in the region where Cas9 is binding, and with some luck you will have that the mutation that it generates will uh, 
either change the sequence of your of your reading of your coding sequence or make a change that will uh, result in a in a modification of your final protein. And that's exactly so they they do try a little bit to find some target so they they need to find out first where are the antibodies recognizing which part of the car of the CD45 uh, protein they're they're recognizing and then try to target that area with this base uh, this uh, base editors and hope that they will find a dominant mutation that generates a change in the epitope that is sufficient to prevent recognition. And they do this. So after, I, I can imagine, took some some work. And they do that. And they show that this uh, uh, edited version uh, allows them not only to change the, the CD45 uh, sequence of the CAR T cells themselves to prevent fratricide, but then you can even uh, combine this with a bone marrow transplantation, in which you edit base edit the 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 the, uh, the hematopoietic stem cells before, and then you end up having at least depending on the efficiency of your of your editing, uh, then you end up having at least some of these cells with this modified CD uh, CD forty five uh, sequence that will then not be susceptible to the CAR. And then you could potentially use this as a kind of combined therapy, and you could use this for any kind of hematological malignancy. Um, they also show that you can even do this. You don't necessarily have to have a car. You can also, if you do this transplantation uh, of edited uh, st stem cells, and then you have, for example, a uh, bispecific activator, um, so that, for example, the CD45 uh, antibody bound to a CD3 anti-CD3 antibody, then you can activate cells. This would also work. Uh, and it really differentiates endogenous or your original hematopoietic compartment with where that includes your uh, tumor from the new stuff that is immune to the uh, detection by this particular clone. Uh, so I thought it was a really very clever. I liked it. And it makes me think, can I, can I use this idea in my research? Um, and so I, I thought it was very, very cool. So nice, nice work. So it sounds like A, you can make by tweaking this, if you had a pan CD45 car, it wouldn't kill itself. That's good. Mm -hmm. But then they're suggesting you do gene editing of the host as well, at least some of their cells so that you don't kill all their immune cells. Yeah, or if, if this person is going to get a bone marrow transplant, then that bone marrow before transplantation, you edit it, and then you give this bone marrow to the patient. So the new bone marrow is immune to the uh, activity of the car. And I think what's also important that I didn't clarify is that they do a lot of tests and they show that this loss of this particular epitope does not affect the functionality of CD45 uh, at all. So that's also, at least in their models. So that's also very important, right? Because if you if you modify it, if you change an amino acid that is important for the function, then it's, it's not going to uh, work or it's not going to be ideal. But yeah, the idea is that if you want to make, usually these people do get bone marrow transplants anyway. So you might as well, you know, protect the bone marrow transplant, give the cars, and then in principle, ideally, this would kind of fix, uh, fix the incompatibility. Makes sense. All right, cool. That's neat. All right. Well, 
we've gone through car cell. We've, you know, we had an all T cell basically besides one bacteria roundup today. That is true. Yeah. I'm sorry. Just these are so interesting sometimes. And we're going to be talking to Kristen Anderson at the University of Virginia in just a moment about T-cells as well. But before we get to that, are you looking to improve your T-cell therapy development, Brenda, in particular? Always. Well, with stem cell technology's new GMP-manufactured Immunocult XF, you can achieve robust T-cell expression with high yield results and high viability without the use of serum. To learn more, visit www.stemcell.com slash immunocultxf. And remember, GMP manufacturing, which is awesome. So today for our interview, we will be talking to Dr. Kristen Anderson. She is an assistant professor at the University of Virginia. And much of her work, I'm very excited about it, works, uh, is uh, about T-cell immunotherapies and targeting a particular set of uh, cancers that uh, have a particular association with her life. So I think we are going to have such a nice conversation today. Uh, Christine, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, welcome to the Immunology Podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's really an honor to be here. Thank you for being here. All right, Brenda, this is this is your, your cell therapy land. So you let me go first with gut and microbiome. So fire away. That is true. That is true. So um, so as I very briefly mentioned, you uh, have some very interesting uh, work around using T-cells for immunotherapy, focusing mostly on ovarian cancer. Um, I think it would be really nice for our listeners to have an idea of what is, what is your lab, what's your current focus on your lab, and what brought you to study ovarian cancer and, and, and I would say similar cancers. Uh, I think there's some personal story that I thought was very inspiring. Well, thank you. Yeah. So like you said, I just started my brand new independent research lab at the University of Virginia. And the focus of the lab really is developing engineered T-cell therapies that can overcome immunosuppressive obstacles in tumors. So I come from a lab where I learned how to engineer T-cells to have a new T-cell receptor and that was absolutely incredible training that really taught me a lot about using physiologically relevant mouse models of disease, developing relevant human models of disease, uh, and a lot of the really amazing molecular biology tools that we can use now to identify an obstacle and then engineer around it in the lab and build tools to bring back to the clinic. So speaking of tools, I'm not you work a lot of, of on OB-GYN tumors, so breast cancer variant, how are the tools for that as tools in mice go in relation to human disease? Yeah, so uh, we are using mouse models that as much as possible mimic the physiologically relevant components of tumors. So we try to find immune competent mouse models and we work in syngeneic systems. So every time we're doing engineering experiments, we have a fully mouse system mouse tumor, mouse tumor antigens, mouse immune cells. Uh, the, so the whole system, we, as much as possible, want to try to simulate what's happening in patient tumors. So every time we identify an obstacle in human disease, such as a ligand that might turn a T-cell off or a death molecule or a suppressive cytokine or a suppressive metabolite, we go back to those immunocompetent mouse models and really vet whether or not that component is also present. And is it present at similar levels? If all of those things line up, 
Then we work in the mouse model to try to engineer a way around that obstacle. And once we find one we think has potential to work, then we start doing the preclinical translation back into human uh, models. So that I think, I of course, that is a very interesting approach. I mean, very makes a lot of sense that you're, but I would always think, what is the risk of translation there? Like, what do you think are the, the major uh, steps when you, you find something that works in a mouse, you might find a system that you can characterize, you can work with, but then what are the chances that the human situation will, you know, transfer? You're absolutely right. And this has actually been one of the obstacles in ovarian cancer, for example. So lots of immunotherapy um, concepts and tools have actually been tried in clinical trials. And to date, most of them have been fairly modest or even really disappointing in terms of outcomes. So what we've been really trying to do is build human models. So we have an intermediate step between that mouse and an actual clinical trial. So I worked with two collaborators at the University of Washington, um, Dr. Elizabeth Swisher and Dr. Venu Pilar-Setti. And we together developed this slice culture model where when a patient goes in for surgery, we actually get a live tumor specimen. We can bring it back to the lab and slice thick sections on the vibratome. We can actually keep those alive in culture for at least seven days. And that gives us an immune competent setting that actually retains a lot of the physiological relevant components of the whole tumor that we can then have that intermediate model to test things in before we go to that next step. That is, uh, I also, I was uh, also familiar with similar model, which you, you know, analyze like little pieces of tumor. And then, for example, you look into the effect of checkpoint inhibition on a small scale. And that actually seems to translate very well with the response in, in patients. So I guess probably your, your system, you've tried it extensively. It can also help you, for example, uh, predict whether a patient responds to an immunotherapy or so, something in that, um, in that level. We're very hopeful. I actually just wrote a grant asking for funds to see if it is predictive. Um, so keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> okay, fingers crossed. Jason, cross your fingers. All right, you're crossed. No one can see. Um, so in breast and ovarian, and maybe the answer is different, what are the biggest challenges there for um, you know cellular-based therapies? And I ask specifically because when I think about this, cell therapies work pretty dang well in what we call liquid tumors, so hemoc tumors, and not well in solid. But I think of solid tumor, breast cancer, sure. But ovarian cancer is weird because it gets into the perineum and almost, in my mind, behaves kind of like a liquid tumor in a lot of ways. And so I was wondering if, like, for instance, does it T-cell therapy-based, you know, these therapies work better in ovarian cancer because of that liquid-like nature or anything like oh, that? Yeah, so that's a really great question. So um, the big major differences between liquid tumors and solid tumors, as you were alluding to before, is that really established microenvironment. And you've had guests on the podcast in the past who've talked about this, like you recently interviewed Greg Delgoff, and he talked about the microenvironment that's really established metabolically. So we're dealing with issues like that. Um, Ovarian tumors, you're right, are very unique in that they often, um, once the primary tumor seeds metastases, they uh, basically form nodules throughout the peritoneal cavity all over the omentum. 
and other peritoneal located organs. And in addition to that, many patients develop ascites, which is a very liquid um, component that has tumor cells, immune cells, blood cells, all sorts of things floating around in it. So a lot of the work we do in the lab really focuses on that solid tumor nodule with the idea that if we can eradicate that component using immunotherapy, there are tools already in the clinic to address components of ascites. Like there are protocols for actually draining ascites from patients, which can dramatically minimize the amount of tumor in that capacity. But yes, the hypothesis would be that if we can address the solid tumor component, which has a lot of obstacles we need to address, um, that the engineered T cells that can interact with cells in ascites, what, what is there, might actually be a little more effective than killing cells in solid tumors. Paracentesis is my favorite medical procedure to perform, which is draining ascites. It, it, nothing is more satisfying than taking five liters off of someone's belly in a day. Absolutely. You also get it from liver failure. So you're never in a good spot when you have it, but it definitely like they feel like a way better immediately. And it's kind of crazy to see. Absolutely. Um, now, you had asked before a little bit about differences between breast and ovarian cancer and some of the tools that we have. And so there are lots of new chemotherapies coming out. So some really incredible work has been done in the breast cancer space to identify um, not only chemotherapies, but some other agents that can be very targeted in terms of killing tumor cells. So one of the components that actually caused me to pivot in my research from being straight immunology, working on infectious disease and vaccines into immunotherapy was my own cancer diagnosis. So when I was in graduate school, I actually went through diagnosis and treatment for um, triple negative breast cancer. And so I got to learn a lot very quickly about where cancer and cancer therapies were at that point. Um, and so when I was going through treatment, I had a cocktail of drugs that were both general. So all breast cancer patients got some of these drugs, but I also had one chemotherapy agent that was targeted because I had a BRCA1 mutation. And so lots of really incredible research over many decades has gone into identifying if we can figure out specific things a tumor expresses that are targetable, let's develop um, a cocktail of agents that can really have high potential to eradicating someone's disease. And in my case, I was incredibly fortunate that that chemotherapy cocktail that they came up with for me eliminated my tumor before we went in to do surgery. So I am one of those cancer patients who is immensely grateful to the physicians and the scientists and the researchers who worked incredibly hard to discover and create those therapies because I'm here today because of those. So that made me pivot into immunotherapy because I could really leverage my immunology expertise and, and pivot into an area that I'm really passionate about. So breast cancers, there are definitely people working on developing immunotherapies for breast cancer. Uh, because there are even fewer therapeutics that are that effective for ovarian cancer, that was really the reason I, one of the main reasons I picked to be in this space. So you, I mean, always, is always so encouraging or so inspiring to, to find scientists that have such a personal relationship with their research. Uh, of course, we're so glad that you're here with us and that it all worked out. And, and, you know, I think must be very 
satisfactory to work on i mean or not maybe because you think it's never fast enough you never get enough done but uh i can imagine that having such a personal connection to your research must be something something else it's absolutely incredibly motivating i'm sure all the scientists listening to this recognize that there are days where you have put your heart and soul into designing and planning and executing an experiment and then something didn't work and you were just so frustrated and I think the mindset that that's how science works, right? A lot of the time, we just have to keep improving things until something works and we can move it forward. That that attitude helps. But the piece you're talking about, the motivation to build therapies to help people, I imagine a lot of scientists have. But yes, the fact that it's very personal for me, I think helps keep me optimistic and helps keep me pushing, right? Coming into lab on days where I'd rather stay in bed and read or right do, do something like go on a hike. I am more likely to get out of bed on a hard day and come into lab because I have that personal connection. Yeah. So one more like diving again into the research because I just I really like diesel therapies. I work on that and I so I'm very always very curious about details sometimes. Yeah. So thinking of, you know, ovarian tumors, for example, and looking if we were go if we were to find cell therapies to treat uh advanced uh ovarian tumors, for example, where are we in in terms of which antigens can we target where do we understand do we uh can we use are there any cars that can we use any tcrs that we have identified i know that you have worked with uh, mesothelin as a, as a target is that a like is that an a, a interesting target where are we what's the future of cell therapy when you think about for example ovarian tumors Absolutely. So there are a lot of groups um, that are working on identifying really great targets. So Kunleo Dunsey's group has some TCRs for NYESO. Uh, Dan Powell's group is working on some CAR T cells. Carl June's group is working on CAR, CAR T cells. So there are lots of antigens people are starting to identify and build tools for. And some of those are in early phase clinical trials. In my work, we use a tool that was already established in the Greenberg lab. So in Phil Greenberg's lab, when I joined, Dr. Ingen Stromness and Tom Schmidt had already developed TCRs for mesothelin, both mouse and human versions. So it was a really great tool for me to leverage because mesothelin is overexpressed in ovarian cancer. Uh, but the real focus of my research is a little less about antigen discovery and a lot more about once we've figured out what antigens to go after, how do we further engineer these cells so they overcome the suppressive signals they're gonna encounter in that solid ovarian tumor? So a lot of the tools that we build actually would synergize beautifully with any CAR or any TCR that we identify that is productive against ovarian cancer. And when we talk about antigen targeting, I think anybody in the field would agree with the statement that most of these tumors are so heterogeneous that targeting a single antigen may not be sufficient to completely eradicate, especially advanced stage disease. So I think there are lots of groups looking at trying to identify different antigens so that we can target multiple, um, either using cool CAR T-cell engineering strategies that target more than one antigen simultaneously, 
or making a cocktail of engineered cells that have different receptors that target multiple different antigens. So uh, getting into your research a little bit, you've made the uh, much lauded and often asked about transition from postdoc to faculty pretty recently. We were talking ahead of the, of the show on your uh, new office. So um, I'm sure like 99% of people want to corner you and ask you how you did that and what's it like and all that. So could you speak a little bit to the job hunt? I know you had a longer postdoc. You had somewhat of a shift from straight immunology to cancer as a postdoc, but but those go together, right? You're not, you're not, you weren't going from like meteorology to cancer or something, right? It right, was, right. It was in the same, same universe. Um, but how was the job hunt? What was it like? Any words of wisdom for aspiring, you know, postdocs or whatnot who are getting ready to try to make that jump? Yeah. So as you said, my career trajectory uh, was a, an experience. Um, I, inadvertently, unknowingly submitted my faculty job application packets in fall of 2019. So I had faculty interviews lined up for beginning 2020, and we all know that everything became chaos beginning of 2020. So most of my faculty job search got completely delayed by a year simply because everything shut down. And then when I was recontacted to move forward with all those applications, everything was virtual. And so I did virtual presentations, virtual chalk talks, lots of different interview formats to do first interviews. And then after vaccines were available, that was when my partner and I started doing second interviews where we would actually visit locations and look at lab space and things like that. Um, the pieces of advice that were given to me that rang true, that were incredibly helpful, were be prepared. So know who you're going to talk to. Um, I felt like the best conversations I had were ones where the person came in and said something about knowing who I was. It raised my spirits and made me feel so valuable and great. And so doing that for someone else. I, I imagine has the same feeling the other direction. So be prepared, um, know who you're talking to. That way, uh, when you get into those conversations, you don't feel caught off guard or in the dark. Um, and then when I was preparing my chalk talk, I got a lot of feedback on structure. So I saw other people's chalk talks. I read a lot of blogs about what people did. And in putting my chalk talk together, I was very, um, I tried to focus on clarity. So minimalistic on the board in terms of words. And I really focused on bullet points and cartoon models. And that was actually something I learned from Mark Jenkins when I was in graduate school. One of the things that we were taught ad nauseum was you need to be able to draw a cartoon model because that's going to help people understand that you know what you're talking about. And we used to go to immunology retreats where we were allowed three slides. One was your title slide, one was your uh, key piece of data, and one was your cartoon model. And that was all you had for the poster session to talk to someone about. 
And it led to some of the most engaging immunology conversations that I had about my work and much more high-level thinking. So I wasn't in the weeds about details of an experiment. I was much higher level, big picture thinking about the whole situation. And, and people could talk about my science, even if they weren't experts in my science. And that really helped in my chalk talk. So maybe a question raised just... I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this, but how many places did you apply for and how many, like, what is the kind of um, invitation rate people usually expect and what, how was your experience? If you're, you know, if somebody that's in this position, I mean, it's always so, you always hear, yeah, rejection is coming. You don't need to get, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't uh, give up just yet, but is that was also the experience for you? I mean, also despite the fact that it was the middle of pandemic, so that might change the whole, the whole environment completely. But what would you think about that? The the, the success rates that. Yep, that's a great question, and I think it will differ depending on the specific focus of your work. So I had an additional component that I was trying to navigate during my faculty search, which is that my partner is also an immunologist. And he also has a research lab and he's an associate professor. And so we are, I know a lot of people call it the two body problem during the search. People kept telling me to think about it like a two body opportunity because lots of people would want a T cell immunologist and a B cell immunologist. And so in some applications, I would read the description of what people were looking for and it would only sort of peripherally talk about cancer immunotherapy. Like there might've been something else those positions were looking for. I applied to anything that sounded relevant, like they might be looking for someone with my skills. And I got contacted by a lot of places, probably the majority of places I applied, I had at least a first interview and most of them I had a second interview. Um, usually the thing that kind of dictated if I had a first to second interview transition was, um, if the institution had the ability to support two scientists. Um, and I think one of the reasons that my rate of getting interviews for all the applications I submitted had to do with the field that I am in, mm. um, T cell engineering, cancer immunotherapy is a really hot field right now and especially translational immunologists who are building therapeutically relevant tools. Uh, one of the things I learned in my job search was that there are so many institutions that are just so hungry for immunologists who can work in that basic discovery space and teach graduate students and have postdocs, but who also can interface and collaborate really effectively with clinical colleagues. So many of the interviews I had actually ended up Maybe I initially was applying for a basic department, but they ended up trying to build a position where I was jointly appointed in the Gynonc or OBGYN clinical department to better facilitate the research that I was proposing to do. Um, and so I think, you know, if you are an immunologist going from graduate school to your postdoc and trying to think long term, you know, explore everything find a topic that you are actually passionate about, because if you want your topic to be something you carry on to your independent research lab, it's got to be something you really love. But I also put a lot of thought into 
what is going to be a niche area for me? How am I going to make my research program something where there aren't very many of me or people like me? And so institutions might have a higher like desire to have someone with my skills and my expertise. So kind of a two-parter. Do you think, A, you could be too niche? though, so that like, oh, you're the only one and we want a more broad thing. But then other question, what did your funding look like when you were able to land a faculty business? Did you have K's? Did you already have an R? Did you have nothing? Because I know in the US that very variable, what type of funding you have and where you can get offers. Please clarify for the non-US people what it means to have a K, what it means to have an R. AK is a junior faculty level grant that supports your salary and a wee bit of funding for either reagents or a technician, but it's like your transition grant after a postdoc fellowship and R is your main funding for a lab, so to speak. So I can speak to both of those. Um, so the first one was about too niche. So this was actually very deliberate. So what I was trying to do was find an area of interest where there weren't a lot of other people. So I wouldn't be necessarily competing with someone at the institution I was applying with, but the skill set that I was bringing was broadly applicable. So my research specifically, we do ovarian cancer research, but like I mentioned a little earlier, the tools we build would synergize beautifully with anyone working on TCR or car engineered T-cells or even tumor infiltrating lymphocyte therapies. So there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration. And some of the obstacles that I'm addressing in ovarian cancer are present in many other solid tumors, pancreas cancer, lung cancer. And so if we find something in one disease that's relevant and we have collaborators who can help us test it in other models, we might be able to build tools that are therapeutically quite broadly applicable. So it, 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 my research focus specifically is niche, but my skill set's very broad. So that was by design, very deliberate. Um, and then the other question was about funding that I had coming into this. So when I first submitted my applications in 2019, I did not have any additional funding to bring with me. I had actually been really successful at getting grants as a postdoc. So at that point in my career, I had gotten around... $750,000, $800,000 worth of funding just as a postdoc to support my postdoc research. Um, and so that already I had a track record of being able to write grants and get funding from lots of different sources. But when the pandemic hit and we were stuck at home, that was when I decided I would write a K award. And so the K grant that I focused on was something called a K-22. Here in the U.S., we talk a lot about the K99 R00 grant process, but I was too far along in my postdoc to apply for that. The K22 award is really designed for people in the position I was. You are so far along in your postdoc, you don't really need more postdoc training, but you would really benefit from mentorship as junior faculty. So that was the one I applied for, and I was fortunate enough to get one from the NCI, so when I got my first round of job offers, I didn't have a K-22. I had applied for it, but didn't know that I was going to be getting it or not. So it didn't really impact the offers I got early on. Once I was awarded it, it impacted things like salary negotiations and space um, and some of those other components. That's very helpful information. Thanks for, for sharing that. I'm sure many of our listeners were taking notes um, <laughs> and 
it is also so refreshing to have um yeah such a clear um yeah account account of of your experience is such a difficult transition really from from the especially uh, and as a fifth year postdoc myself you know at some point you start feeling the heat and it gets in every here in Europe as well uh so it's always nice to hear uh, the experiences of people that that are at least making it through you know and so at the moment what's what's your what does your lab look for so you've been like around five months in so how big is your lab now Right. So I started officially at the end of April. And because I had a, a longer postdoc than most, so I had about six, seven years as a postdoc, six years as a postdoc. And then I transitioned into a research associate position. Some places call it an instructor position. So it was essentially that transition position where I was still in my advisor, my mentor's lab, but I was really trying to build the things I was going to bring with me for my independent research program. And so in that time, I did a lot of single cell RNA sequencing experiments where I obtained the data. So we did some pilot experiments, we really optimized design, and then we got a huge influx of data. And I am not a bioinformatics expert. I don't code. I don't do any of that analysis. So I was going to desperately need a collaborator or people in my lab who knew that. So as soon as I was able to start hiring, um, there were a couple types of positions that I targeted. One, lab manager. So hired someone to help me get all the protocols and paperwork done, um, hired someone who could help me pick out lab equipment, get things ordered, and someone who could be on the ground here in Virginia to receive things while I was still in Seattle and my kids were finishing up the school year. So lab manager we lucked into finding an absolutely excellent person who's part of our lab. So I'm really grateful that she was looking for work the same time we were looking to hire. And then I actually hired two bioinformatics experts. So um, we have one individual in the lab who uh, basically did graduate school and a postdoc in bioinformatics and spent some time in biotech and then came back to academia because he's interested in pursuing an academic job. So he's a full-time member of the lab who just does bioinformatics analysis all the time and mentors um, other people about it. And then I also have a short-term postdoc who was here over the summer, basically finished his PhD, wanted to learn a little bit more bioinformatics and a little bit of immunotherapy uh, in terms of the biology concepts. Um, and he's getting ready to launch into his own position in biotech. So I currently have three people in the lab. We're gearing up to have undergrads and graduate students starting in the fall. I guess it's a good time to ask if you, if our listener, any listener in the area should, if you're actively still looking for members of your lab. Absolutely. People can reach out anytime. Uh, if you have interest in immunotherapy or immunotherapy for solid tumors specifically, please let me know. We're always looking for really motivated and enthusiastic researchers. All right. Well, at the end of the show, we like we like to ask a, a question not directly related to research or careers. Um, we call it the fun question, but it's, it's usually a very insightful one. So if you were not a scientist, what would you be instead? I love this question. Um, if I were not a scientist, I would be a scuba dive instructor. Um, we went actually to a scientific conference when I was in graduate school out in Australia and took a few extra days. And we went up to the Great Barrier Reef and did a live aboard 
scuba dive experience. And so I got to learn how to scuba dive. And we went down for a training dive and we came back up and the guide like tapped on my regulator and said, did you even breathe down there? Like you barely used any oxygen. So that was a really big indicator, just how comfortable I was under the water. I was a swimmer in high school, loved the beach and snorkeling all the time when I was growing up. Um, and more recently, post-pandemic, when we had a little bit of vacation money to use, we went to Tahiti and we went scuba diving at several different um, locations in the Polynesian Islands. And I could live there. I just loved being underwater. I loved the ocean life. It's like another world. From now on, every holiday is a scuba diving destination. As many as I can deliberately get everyone to go to a scuba dive location, I absolutely try to manipulate vacations that way. Excellent. <laughs> that sounds like a great plan. Uh, it's been so nice talking to you. Uh, really, really great conversation. I mean, I could, again, I could speak about this uh, therapy all day long, but we can't. We do have a, you know allocated time for this. Uh, but as you mentioned, uh, any listener interested for a position, reach out, new lab, new PI. This is a perfect situation, perfect storm for a successful graduate uh, or postgraduate um, experience. So all the best. Uh, congratulations and well, good luck Thank in the you. years to come. Thank you so much. This was really a pleasure. I'm, I'm really honored to be here. So thank you so much for the invitation. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com if you have any feedback or you would like to suggest a guest. See you next time.